I don't know when the words liberal or conservative became insults. What I do know is that I can't remember a time when they weren't. So maybe it's always been this way, at least to some degree. I don't know. I'm not sure. My guest on this episode of the podcast is a voice who shows up on what might be considered the conservative side of many conversations, online and off. I've watched her navigate the nuances of those engagements without slipping into the snark and dismissiveness that has become a hallmark of political argument. I've also marveled at her capacity to both belong to and deeply critique her own culture. She holds a PhD. She is a research professor of English and Christianity and culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. She's the author and contributor to a library of books, including a very recent book entitled Cultural Engagement, a Crash Course in Contemporary Issues. This is my conversation with Karen Swallow Pryor. Check it out. Where are you calling me from? Where am I call- Where are you right now? At Central Virginia. Okay. And is that, are you, you're still there. That's not where you're from from. Where are you from? Originally from Maine. Okay. Where in yeah. Maine? Um, near Augusta. Nowhere yes. exotic. Yeah. I mean, not, you know, <laughs> inland. <laughs> Way out there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but then, and- then I lived in Buffalo and then moved to Virginia 21 years ago. So, <laughs> um, does it still feel like home, Virginia? It, yeah, yes, it definitely feels like home. Um, it, well, I mean, in in a lot, I love it. Um, it still is a foreign culture to me, but uh, right. <laughs> growing up in the secular Northeast, but uh, but I love I love Virginia, the country, the weather, yeah, the beauty. So yeah, it's like it's like me. It's a little. It's kind of like Maine without the cold. <laughs> Virginia, like Maine, without the cold. <laughs> and not as many pine trees, but... <laughs> True. When you go back, do you often go back to Maine, visit family? Do you still have family there? I still have... Um, my brother lives there, and um, my grandparents were, but they're both dead, and I have some other relatives there. So, yeah, I get back every few years, but... And does yeah. that still feel like home? Yes, Absolutely. It's always home. Yeah, it, yeah, like just emotionally, you feel like you've you've got because some folks move away and they they just literally they just emotionally dissociate. Like I don't recognize it. I don't feel at home there. Like they needed to leave. Whatever. You still feel like your roots. Are, you do you still feel like a northeasterner living in yes. Virginia? Yes. Fascinating. And <laughs> when you talk about like the foreign culture of Virginia, like what makes it foreign to you? Like where are the gaps? Um, it's the Bible Belt culture, um, the biggest shock was, which I never, I mean, I just didn't even know that it, what it, that it existed until moving here, but just the cultural Christianity that serves basically like a vaccination against real Christianity. (laughs) Um, because in the Northeast, it just, you know, genuine, Christians are so rare that yes. when you find them, you know, it's like you you know them and there's community and moving down here where people assume that they're Christians Correct. but don't it's just I've never gotten over it like I I you know, I just know how to talk to secularists people. and liberals right about Christianity but I don't know how to talk to people who think <laughs> And maybe they are Christians. I'm not saying they're not Christians, but it's just 
but who the hell knows that's kind of the thing it's like you're you're assuming this yeah i think was it was it tyler was it tyler huckabee who tweeted recently uh i I wish i remembered the specific i'm actually gonna go see if i can find it he tweeted it was like the other day he said something along the lines of um what's it cartoon christianity and he said like one of the upsides to oh one of the this is what he says one of the perks of seeing cartoon Christianity used as a used to prop up all sorts of malevolent stupidity which is just such a great line one of the perks of seeing cartoon Christianity used to prop up all sorts of malevolent stupidity is that I've become so much more grateful for the real thing hmm. um hmm. I love that um you um I'm not gonna make a bunch of assumptions I'm gonna ask some questions I mean your work as an academic. You work in public, it lands right here in that tension, right? Like constantly between like what's cartoonish, what's real. You're constantly parsing and parsing, I would assume for yourself personally, but a lot of what you end up doing, it seems in public is to help other people parse. Are there, are there things for you uh, that are distinctive of a, a more actually authentic is not exactly what I want to use here, but like a non-cartoonish uh, experience of, of God, of the divine, like what are, what are the hallmarks of the difference between what's cartoon religion and what's actual religious practice for you or for the world around you? Are there things that you look for? Is there a scent? Like how, how do you discern? I'm just fixating for a moment on the whole cartoon religion thing, because that's just brilliant. And, uh, yeah, that needs to become that set that just captures so much. Okay. So back to your question. Okay, so what is the different? What are some hallmarks uh, in the of non-cartoonish? Yeah, for you, like yes. knowing the difference yes. between like this is garbage or mm-hmm. semi-garbage, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. you know, to know that to some degree has to come through the filter of knowing what isn't. Mm-hmm. Are there ways that you personally or demically or culturally identify this is real or more real? Well, some of the things that I would consider hallmarks that I never really thought were that distinct until, you know, recent years were things like the ability and desire to have conversations with people who don't believe like you do so that you can learn from them and they can learn from you. Like, that seems like a no brainer to me, but I'm realizing, you know, that a lot of people, you know, whether it's because of their belief in degrees of separation or purity or fear or whatever that, or what things look like, you know, the appearances, um, that's not something that a lot of people see as a hallmark of genuine Hmm. Christianity. So just conversations with people who don't believe as you do, whether, you know, they profess to be Christians or not. Um, and another hallmark of non-cartoonish Christianity would be not assuming or identifying completely with a political party as, you know, the equivalent of Mm -hmm. your faith. Um, Again, this is something that seems to have emerged in the past few years, but obviously has been brewing for a while where that um, conflation seems increasingly um, prevalent. Um, I mean, these just seem really basic to me, so I haven't, had yeah. to, you know, I'm not, if I, if I thought, thought more deeply, um, I think just, uh, the willingness or the assumption really, uh, or, you know, just 
that that one um, reads or discusses challenging ideas, those ideas that, you know, you might not believe in or agree with and that one wants to um, have an, you know, have an open mind and be be willing to ask hard questions and to talk to those who doubt or disagree, which is kind of the first thing that I said, but even just for ourselves, you know, having a conversation with other people, but also having an ongoing conversation with ourselves about what we believe and why we believe it and kind of checking in saying, Oh, why do I believe this? Or why do I think this? Or, you know, um, so those are self-examination. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it is. It is an odd bit, right? That like those things would seem like those are just common sense. But oddly enough, I would have thought. <laughs> one would have thought, but oddly enough, self-examination and the ability to have conversations with someone who, or people in general, who don't line up with you, they're suddenly, uh, well, it seems sudden. They do seem sudden. Uh, they're they're suddenly. Uh, bars to clear. That's like a hoop to jump through. Mm-hmm. Like, can you mm-hmm. do this basic thing? It's like, well, I thought. Mm-hmm. I don't think we're running. This is walking. How how are we having a hard time walking? What, do you feel? Do you feel like there has been a, like an actual shift away from civility and conversation uh, from selection? Like, did something shift, or were we exposed? Right? Like, because that's. There's a little bit of a thing here. Mm-hmm. Is this like, hey, the 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 sick belly of, um, the sick underbelly of white evangelicalism has been exposed, and that's this is one narrative. And like, oh my gosh, look at all of the misogyny, and it has been there. Was what like did things change? Did things shift? Was it this way? I mean, uh, or yeah, what, did we get exposed? Or did something change? Well, that is sort of the $25,000 question. Um, and I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm going to take the easy way out and just say both. Okay. Um, <laughs> and it's, you know, something that I'm still thinking about because it's actually something I'm still sort of seeing for myself. So um, I do think, you know, one, one thing that has changed and just to go back to something I said earlier, I mean, I, I talked about moving to the Bible Belt and what a culture shock that was right. because it's just sort of insulated and there are a lot of assumptions. Well, that sort of geographical and cultural echo chamber, to use that term, mm-hmm. which is what I see it now as, um, is something that's replicated in a lot of other ways you know, through social media hmm. and other kinds of groupings and organizations. So what was once a geographical echo chamber, now we see that in different forms that transcend, you know, physical place and geography. So, Mm. um, so that, that seems that increases, um, Hmm. the kinds of tendencies that we are talking about and other right. kinds of tendencies as well. So the, I think there is an increase and a change and a, and a, of a, a sort of a, um, what is the mathematical term for it? You know, we see an exponential increase or something and something that was already there. Right. And what was already there, this sort of um, underbelly of white evangelicalism, I'm seeing more and more. I mean, of course, I'm concerned about sexism, uh, more concerned really about racism. Mm. Um, and I, I do think as I, something I'm starting to think through 
is that it really does have less to do with sex and race per se as hmm. it does just simply with power. And it happens hmm. to be for a lot of reasons that, you know, it's white men who've been in power for, you know, most of the <laughs> human history, especially in Western civilization. Mm -hmm. And and because I and I I because I don't think that people of other races or sexes would be immune to the same kinds of abuses. Mm -hmm. Um and so that's why I want to be careful uh and and talk about what really underlies it. Mm -hmm. Um because I do think it's a human problem and it just happens to be that the people in power um, now and, and for a long time are, you know, are white men. And, and, and so in addressing this problem as a woman or as, you know, as a racial, I'm not a racial minority, but as I, as I work with other, with racial minorities and other minorities, you know, we have to be really careful that, you know, to, to quote those great um, uh, 20th century philosophers, the who, um, that we don't get fooled again, right? Yes. And that the that the old boss isn't, you know, that we don't replace the old boss with a new boss. Yes. So, um, hmm. anyway, that's that's kind of what I'm thinking about these days in yeah, terms of of that. So, in yeah. a sense, I mean, you're not willing to or wanting to diagnose whiteness as principally or fundamentally corrupt, so much as recognize the issue with whiteness is the abuse of power. Right. Right. And any one of us could also do that. Um, maybe we'd be less likely to. I mean, you know, if we consider, you know, the role that maybe physical strength has to play in that, then maybe it is going to be more likely to be men. And there are lots of factors that, that play into it, but uh, we're still all human and we're still all um, as corruptible um, by these temptations uh, as the next guy. So what I'd like to do, and I, I often do this a little bit later in uh, in conversation, but um, I, I, it's it's kind of like a game. It's not really it's not really a game. It is it is a game. I'm, we're gonna play a game. The game right. uh, it's a it's a sort of practice of lexicon. In other words, like um, the words that the words we use. I'll just talk about you. The words that you use have a particular angle and bent. So when you know. Uh, um, um, I'm blanking on the name of the the poet Emily Dickinson who who writes you know tell the truth but tell it slant like recognize mm -hmm. that what what words you use are not standardized across culture they're they're your right. words and you have to own your own angle on them um there's there are particular words and uh, worlds that you function in and I love what I like to do is I'm just gonna put a word on the table and just have you vamp on it whether it's like um a, like a definition like here's what this is. Or mm -hmm. this just kind of reflection um, about like whatever kind of the word draws out of you, and I want to start with the word evangelical. You, you because you wrote a you wrote a book, um, or you, I think you were part of a book about it was I think it's called Still Evangelical. It was a Mark mm -hmm. Laberton, who's a mentor of mine, who helped uh, edit the book. Um, you're in the book with I think Shane Claiborne and Lisa Shane Harper, and talking about like your history with and engagement with this word, this culture, this thing called evangelicalism. 
can you talk about like what does it mean for you? What is what is it, what is either what is evangelical for you now? Is it different? Just talk about the word evangelical. What's it draw out of mm-hmm. you? Sure. I mean, if we we're doing sort of the word association game, and mm-hmm. you asked me to think of the first thing that pops into my head when I hear that word, mm-hmm. I actually the first thing that I think of is. Um, the 18th century British evangelicals like the Wesleys and then labor William Wilberforce and Hannah Moore, Hmm. um, those who, you know, brought about so many social reforms, including the abolition of slavery and um, advocacy for animal welfare and for child laborers and all of those things. And and, and I realized that that is that that connotation is so far removed from what most people in 2021 think of. Um, But that is the not only the origin of the movement, but it's also where I spent, you know, years of my life in study and research. And so it is a word that means a great deal to me. Um, and that is what I think of. It is a word that covers 300 years of history. Um, none of it perfect, um, some of it bad, but some of it good. And it just really saddens me that it is a word that has become so um, narrowed um, and stripped of its rich layers because of the 2016 election and all the polling and the reports in the media. And it's kind of the tail wagging the dog when evangelicals themselves, whether they use that term or not, have allowed, you know, headlines and polls to redefine a very rich heritage. And that's not to say that the movement and the word doesn't, um, come to some end um, and, you know, and, and something else gets born uh, because these things happen over hundreds of years. And, you know, it's, we're 300 years into this movement. So I'm not saying that um, it won't um, become something else or give birth to something else. But still, if it does, it needs to do that because of larger sweeps and more and, and deeper wrestling than just, you know, connotations given to it by Americans in 2016, because this is a much, you know, it's, it's a, it's a global term and, um, it doesn't belong to just us. Are you suggesting that Americans tend to define things in small ways? (laughs) (laughs) No. Uh, And in small and very, um, self, focused ways. Um, We just can't see outside of ourselves or our time. I mean, just, just look at this pandemic that we're in and, and I just marvel at people who, regardless of all, you know, so complicated, so many things to think about, but just the lack of people really knowing and just sitting with the fact that these things happen every hundred years and there's nothing special about us except we have vaccines and we can actually probably overcome it more easily than they did a hundred years ago or 200 years ago, or, you know, 300 years ago with the bubonic plague. Like we are just, you know, we are babies. (laughs) Spoiled. Speaking of babies, um, do the same thing with church. What is church? What, what does the word church do in, in your head, your heart, your body now? Like when you hear the word church, what happens for you now? 
I think when I hear the word church, I first hear the church. So I think of the church, I think of the bride of Christ and um, just how precious and beautiful she is and how Christ is still purifying and cleansing her. Um, and, and we all that, that we all, we, if we are believers, we are called to be part of that. Um, whatever that means, whatever denominational or geographical or whatever, right. you know, place where God has put us, we are called to be part of that church body. Um, so I think of that and, um, but more recently in more recent days, I think of, when I think of church, I think of something that, um, you know, that feels distant to me because I haven't gone into, um, physical worship since, uh, the pandemic, um, or, you know, a couple of reasons because I'm, my primary, um, concern is to protect the health of my elderly parents, um, who live with us and whom I care for. And beyond that, even my own, you know, selfishly, I'm just not, I've, I've spent more time in a hospital than I need to for the rest of my life. So I just, you know, I'm not taking risks that would, um, get me sick. Um, and so, and, you know, I don't think most people, uh, are as cautious as I am. So I have a pretty high bar. And so, uh, so church in that sense also just, there's a little bit of longing and wistfulness Mm. and nostalgia, um, that's tied up with the pandemic and the desire to hopefully return to something more like normal Mm. someday soon. Can you talk of the word masculinity? Oh, wow. Um, so there's a, you know, there's a, um, when I hear the word, that word, I first think of the sort of, um, cartoonish version that's circulating out there on the internet, um, which just, uh, if it weren't so, I mean, it makes me laugh, but it makes me sad too, um, because it is so uh, surface level and distorted. And again, because my because I studied history so much through literature, and my period of specialty is the 18th century, and of course, 17th century, lots of British literature, and so there are so many great men who wore, you know velvet and, and, and ruffles and wigs, and they were brilliant theologians. And, <laughs> and some of my favorite men writers. still do wear, wear ruffles <laughs> and velvet, can you we know, be honest? They, yes, yes. And so when, I, you know, so when I contrast this idea of masculinity that again is so 21st century American conservative evangelical against the men that I have, you know, sat with and studied (laughs) metaphorically um, for so many years, I just don't know how to reconcile that. And of course, that doesn't mean Hmm. that there weren't, um, you know, that the the models from history are the best Hmm. or perfect models. It's not that at all. I mean, they're, but they're all informed by the times and the culture. Um, And then when I you know, I think I just always think of my own husband when I hear the word masculinity, um, because he like he is 
such a good man that, and, you know, no offense to any present company here, but like, he is not on social media. (laughs) He is, he is, you know, he's a teacher and he's a provider and he's a builder and he's a hunter and he's an artist and he's a, he's a, um, a giver and he's a caretaker. He's all of these things and um and the last thing on earth that he would do in his role and all of these masculine things is to like debate what masculinity is on twitter so it just you know all of those things this it just makes me laugh uh hmm. because um it's almost like if you uh what is the you know it, what is the thing that you say and it no longer exists silence that word what however that little riddle yes. goes and i think what is the thing that if you talk about it on twitter you can't be and it's like masculine <laughs> so, um, yeah. i don't know that's that's just my what? my biased view <laughs> Let's talk for a minute about living online. I mean, you mentioned your husband doesn't. Um, <laughs> you you do. You spend some time. Um, you spend some time online. You spend some time what, on yeah. in the odd, strange, dark cesspool of I don't even know what to call it anymore that we call Twitter. Um, <laughs> do you, um, is it a necessity for you? Is it a, is it a chore for you? Like, talk about your experience living online. Yeah. As an academic, um, as uh, as a woman, as uh, a mom, like your experience of yeah, life online in to some degree, like touching on one of those third rail topics. Oftentimes, not several of them, because you're in religion, <laughs> you're in politics, you're in academia, and there you are on Twitter, oftentimes <laughs> taking shots, sometimes doling some out. Do you like living online? Do you, is it just a chore? Mm-hmm. Is it, is it healthy? Just talk about like, yeah, let's mm-hmm. start with there. Like, do you like being there? Do you like being online? Do you like using Twitter? Is it a happy place? Oh, hmm. it's so complicated. So um, right. we have to go, <laughs> we have to go back to whatever year it was that Facebook was invented. Um, That's 50, and- uh, 16 years ago. Yes. Okay. So it's a freaking I was, teenager. Uh, people people forget about this. Like they're like, oh, the internet. It's, like, it's a teenager. Of course, it's a damn mess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was when Facebook came out and my students started to use it. I um, you know, was curious. And at that, when it first came out, you could only get on it. It was for college students, and so you could only get on it if you had an edu email address. So that would right. be college students, but also professors like I was. And so I got on it because, um, uh, basically first I wanted to see what my students were talking about. And then as soon as I got on, I started using it as a way to extend my classroom and to like, it was so easy to post things. So I would, if we were having a discussion in classroom, the classroom, then I would uh, post something, either an article related to it, or just talk about what we were talking about. And so from the beginning, I viewed Facebook as an extension of my classroom. Hmm. And eventually when I got on Twitter, uh, one of my students, like a couple of my students actually told me, oh, you'd be great on Twitter. I was like, what is Twitter? And I, you know, at first I hated it. I didn't understand how to use it. Um, But I still, I got on it. And again, I had that same, I'd been on Facebook for a few years. And so I just, again, treated it almost like a classroom. Hmm. 
Um, and what then a, I just still, pause for a second. Like, what a yeah. what a strange compliment nowadays. We're like, you'd be good on Twitter <laughs> because they, <laughs> that's such a weird thing to say nowadays. Yeah, it's like yeah, it's like yeah, you'd yeah. be good I, at I, driving. I, yeah. Wait, what? What are you talking about? <laughs> Is that a thing? Are people I know, good? I, are I think people good that. or bad at Twitter? And I guess they are. But what an odd thing to <laughs> well, say. Well, yeah, yeah. Um, and my I, my students, they called it. I was just thinking of the, those two students the other day and what they said, and I was like, well, they what do they think of me now? Um, but um, so yeah, so I just I treated it. I, I always saw it as a classroom, and again, it, it's you know, sharing articles is my love language. That's hmm. just like what I do. So it, tweeting art, you know, that's really it's more than that, but that's still kind of what I do on Facebook and and on Twitter. Um, I started you know, cultivating conversations on Facebook. I don't do it as much now because I don't have as much time, but I mean, I would have, you know, I still do now and then these long extended conversations on Facebook with a diverse, you know, audience. Um, and so I became known for being able to sort of cultivate and and moderate these conversations. Um, and so I, I still see that as valuable. Obviously I'm still there. I think it's a great way of sharing ideas now. I see it as something different and perhaps more important, especially hmm. Twitter. Um, more I important now. Mission, more important. I see it as a mission field. Fascinating. Because social it. media is the driving force behind so much that's happening today. Um, and even though I literally every day, several times a day, fantasize about not being on social media and just mm-hmm. reading books instead, because obviously I could be spend more time reading. I mean, I still read books, but obviously I could spend more time and I, I, I think about it and I wonder, and I just want to do that. And I, yeah. I you know, I need to moderate my, my time on social media. Uh, but of course, a lot of people have just left it all together. I know some great thinkers yeah. and writers who've just left it. And I think about doing that. And do you have respect um, for that? I, like once what, cause that's, it's sort oh, of the absolutely. high ground p- move. Right. And and I don't know what right. to think of this part of what I'm asking. I don't exactly know what to think about it. I understand from, from some people's standpoint, like from the standpoint of mental health, like if you're beat up, like I look at, I, I, I think you may know uh, uh, Kristen Powers from, from CNN and like mm-hmm. she, she, I've never seen anyone take, shots the way she takes shots it's it's unreal the way she gets beat up on twitter and so it's it would make sense to me if someone like Kirsten was like i was i'm just done this hurts too much i'm done people talking people like blowing her up about her makeup like she's like this is a take on like massive social issues and you're actually talking about her makeup right now i get that the part of that's strange for me is when folks do take the odd moral high ground where it's like, this is a deeply corrupt place and I just don't want to have to have anything to do Mm -hmm. with it. Mm -hmm. I don't know what to do with that. I don't know how to, I don't know how to feel about folks who believe Mm -hmm. the Twitter, Facebook, Snapchat, Instagram, that it's all gross. And because it's gross, I can't be there. That Mm -hmm. sounds wrong to me. And I don't know if I'm wrong to feel that way. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, do you have respect for folks who bounce for those reasons? Um, I mean, I, I do in the sense if it's doing something bad to them, um, but not if it's, I mean, it, it, it is a form, the, these are formative practices. There is no denying that. Um, and it's, I guess it's like, and uh, you know, not choosing not to go to the mall because you don't believe in everything that it's, you know, stands for 
as opposed to, you know, kind of getting on the planning commission hmm. in your community to plan something else that's better. Right. I mean, yes. you can just refrain from going to the mall or you can be part of a community that has a voice in doing something different. Now, I, again, like maybe we can't really make Twitter that different. And, and um, but for me, I, I just I feel a responsibility until I'm released to a sense of that responsibility and calling because I do think I do do Twitter well. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and I've had people contact me and, you know, I'm numerous. I mean, they just they are learning, they are watching. Um, I mean, I'm not trying to save all mankind by being on Twitter. Um, but it seems to be making a difference in people, Mm. you know, in in some people's lives and thinking and the way they behave. And that's it. I sometimes just think I hate that I'm called to Twitter. Like Mm. I would rather be called to writing, you know, award-winning um academic you know books that are praised all the world over and i'm like i'm called to twitter it feels very humbling and low i'll be honest at times but it is i just i feel called to it and i i'm i'm you know until and 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 it does it obviously does benefit me i don't want i don't you know like my platform um that i have you know it i probably wouldn't have um be able to publish the books that I published with the publishers I have if I didn't have, you yeah. know, X number of followers. It is, I, you know, it is the thing they look game. at. <laughs> they, yeah, they, yeah. Here are your numbers so, and here are ours. But I want, you know, I pray and hope that I'm using it for good until yeah. I'm called to something else. <laughs> yeah, there's something to be said for Andy Crouch's um, uh, pretty insightful take that, you know, the the, the real only. He, I, th- I, don't, I don't think he says only. This is the best uh, critique of bad culture is better culture that if Mm. that like Mm -hmm. great that's neat you have a critique you and everyone has a freaking critique everyone's got a critique (laughs) it's the easiest thing in the world to be like this sucks okay great Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. what are you doing um is the other side of it and that that's the part of it that that um i actually i really do admire the way uh you posture yourself in conversation online because there are expectations that come there are expectations people come to you with and you do a really good, good job of navigating that. You actually culture, you culture make with your, with your online spaces. I'm thankful for folks like you who are not, cause it's not just like you're taking shots all day. You really do culture make and you've, you've curated an actual space in, in your social media circles or, or spheres where there's a different tone and ex and expectation, which is again, I come back to Facebook is 16 years old. Like, of course, oh, wow. it's a freaking mess. It's, but like, I was an utter disaster at 16. I mean, hell, mm-hmm. I was an utter disaster mm-hmm. at 26. Like, I was a, a freaking mess. It, you know, the, the notion somehow that it as a platform, or that we on this platform, should just be able to see straight and know what the hell we're doing at this point. I just, that's mm-hmm. a thing you forge. It's not a thing that happens. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not, we don't, like, it doesn't somehow make sense mm-hmm. because it makes sense. No, you make right. sense of it. So I'm thankful for your posture there. Well, thank you. And it's, you know, I find a lot of instruction again in looking at history. So the period of my specialty is the the rise of print culture. And so in the 17th and 18th century, when, you know, it was became, you know, being able to print things rapidly and uh, lots of things uh, cheaply. And they were all these print publications, whether it was pamphlets or newspapers or journals um, Mm -hmm. and early novels. 
um, people were freaking out because yes. of all of this stuff being printed and people being able to read it and being um, vulnerable to believing things that weren't true and, you know, and thinking that a novel was real and thinking Gulliver's Travels really was a real story and, <laughs> and printing heresy and treason and all of these things. It was a disaster. Um, but or, at least, or at least a potential disaster. A potential, right. It, everyone was afraid. And so, yep. Yeah, but now, now we have like people can read and we publish it like a few hundred years later, we have sort of mastered print culture. Mm -hmm. um, and now we have digital culture and, and it's a, we're, we're panicking again and we will, we will figure it out. We're still in this, we will 50 years from now look back and go, Oh, how could we, how could people have been so naive to believe, um, you know, everything that they read on the internet, like you know, they will look back at us and think we were silly and naive. Um, and because they'll have, we'll get more sophisticated, we'll figure it out. And then something else will come along. It's just, you know, human history. Your political engagement. I think, I think this is right. The, the, the most recent, your most recent publication is the cultural engagement book, the crash course in contemporary issues. Is that, is that, is that correct? You and yes. Okay. Um, the ability to, or the choice to enter into political conversation I mean, that book was, uh, I think, July of last year. Yes. Um, and uh, the world, I don't even know how to describe this at this point. I guess I'll ask you this. Did you see things going this badly? Um, not just in terms <laughs> of like, you know, the asinine ridiculousness that is Donald Trump as a public figure and a politician, but more to the point, like, the utter inability for anyone almost across the board with very few exceptions to talk about anything that matters in a way that like moves and changes minds. Like I think minds do change online. Like you said, I think it's an important place. I never saw it getting this bad or this difficult. Did you see mm. it getting this difficult, this bad? Can like, talk no. about like political conversation in general, but specifically political political conversation online, did you did you you've been in these kind of tenuous spaces for a long time? You've been in conversation with folks who've uh, who've held a considerable amount of power in terms of like, you know, uh, white evangelical influence, etc. Did you see it going this dark? Does it make sense to you? Does this feel out of the blue? And is there hope for like the next two or three years, or are we just is this how it is? Um, no, I, I mean, I did not see it going like this. I think, I think actually this, um, the publication of the, of this book last year was kind of a wake up call. It got blacklisted hmm. in certain circles simply because uh, it, it, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm using that word and not going into detail, but, um, wow. there were people who opposed the book because it, it did what we, <laughs> what we wanted it to do, which was to have. <laughs> views that we don't agree with in it and to, to be examined and discussed going back to the earlier part of our conversation, because I naively assumed that genuine believers not only can handle that, but seek it out. Um, mm. uh, but everyone is so like afraid of like, Oh, if I, you know, platform this or I'm seen with this person, I'm marked. I, I, I don't, no, there's just a, a real panic, I guess, among those mm -hmm. who hold power um, 
that, you know, very tenuously and, and just how easily that power could be taken away by a wrong move or a wrong photo op or, um, I, I just, I didn't know that, that these things were that tenuous. And then we've just seen that escalate where, um, I, I it, it, it is pretty, people are clinging so tightly and so desperately to whatever it is that they have, um, that they're willing to, um, you know, I guess, you know, to, to sell out, to, mm. uh, to, to, to tweet, you know, uh, you know, out their support of, of this crazy notion or that crazy notion just to get the approval from those, those people. Yeah. Um, so it's, it is bad, but here's, here's the good thing. Hmm. What is happening in all this is that the veil is being lifted. We are seeing what it is that people are striving after and what they hold valuable and dear. Um, and we are seeing the, um, the, the methods and the means they are willing to engage in for their, their ends. And it's, a revelation it's hmm. an apocalypse and yes. like all apocalypses it's really awful um but i believe that god in his mercy is showing us things that we at least for me that i didn't see before hmm. and i'm thanking him for it even as painful as it is to see are there ways <laughs> My daughter is in her bedroom directly above my garage and she's losing her mind right now. Um, so I will, <laughs> uh, I'll edit a lot of that out. Um, are there ways in terms of like revelation apocalypse, the unveiling, are there ways that um, you see yourself uh, differently now that are surprising? In other words, um, actually I set this question up this way is a number of years ago, um, like one of the most formative experiences of my life. I was, I went with, um, I was on a record label. I was playing music and I went with, um, Frank Tate, who's the label head. And we, we went to this, uh, showcase and Frank, and the whole morning was for the most part, label head standing up saying the, you know, this artist is amazing. This record's amazing. You're going to love it. Here's some free stuff. Everybody stand and clap, you know, the greatest thing since the Beatles kind of stuff. And Frank didn't say that. Frank got up in front of like 250 like radio executives and music buyers and stored heads. And he said, he said, this is Justin McRoberts and he's artist we'll be focusing on this year. And I'll be honest, he's not very good right now. And, uh, and then, and, and, you know, the room freaked for a moment. And then he said, what I'm counting on though, is that a lot of the artists you've seen this morning won't be uh, playing music two or three years from now because it's hard. I think Justin will be around 15 years from now and I think he'll be making better work and I'm making a long-term investment. If you want to make it with me, great. If not, I don't care. And they walked off the stage and, and I had to play a song. And I was like, this song sucks apparently. And so here you go. But what he did was he set this tone of like, oh, like I can have like a longer term vision for who I'm becoming. And there are things over the course of that 15 years that like, oh, I, I, I was hoping that would happen. And then there are things uh, socially, emotionally, really specifically, to some degree theologically, like I did not see. I didn't see becoming that person. I didn't see thinking this mm -hmm. way. You, um, your consistency over time has been a, like an incredible value to the folks who 
follow you that you're um i want to use the word dependable but that's not exactly the way i want to say it but there's this kind of like faithfulness and reliability to you to your work to your character over time are there ways that as you are now like you did not see becoming like this is who you are now you look at what your place in life the things you think the things you believe the way you work in the world are you surprised at anything in you or about you right now that like 15 years ago, you just would not have seen coming? Well, I don't think I would have seen myself on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I certainly, you know, I never thought that I would be a seminary professor at a Southern Baptist Institute. I mean, I've been Baptist my whole life, but I just never saw myself as a seminary professor and I hmm. never saw myself in, you know, if I were at a Southern Baptist seminary, just, um, so that's, that's just been an amazing thing. But I, I, I feel like this might be, I mean, this is, is probably cliche and could easily be taken the wrong way, but I feel like I've remained the same in a lot of ways and the world around me has changed. Um, you know, I, I, I think, for example, I mean, anyone who knows me knows I'm passionately pro-life. I've you know, spent years protesting at abortion clinics and getting arrested and, um, and all those things. And, you know, I'm, I'm, too, I'm too old and have other things to do, you know, you know, I'm not that young anymore to do those kinds of things, but I, I still feel the same passion. Well, I bring that same passion to other social issues that are pressing today, like mm -hmm. the, the race issue and the abuse issue. So to, to me that those are all part of the same same passion for justice and for right and for um and and for protection of the vulnerable and yet the we're in the world that I'm in people see these as highly politicized things or they right. oppose them altogether um and so I feel like I've just um you know I was just um finished up reading C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce which I haven't read in a long time or hadn't read in its completion I don't know but you know, there's that famous part where he talks about, um, you know, part of being in heaven is that we become more and more ourselves. Um, and well, maybe we're in hell now, but <laughs> um, but I, you know, but I, 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 by the grace of God, I just feel like even in this hard, these hard years and, and, you know, the sex abuse crisis in the church and, and then, you know, me getting hit by a bus, all of these things that have been hard to go through. Um, like God is just helping me to become more myself and, and who, and I want the, you know, who he created me to be. And that's, that's all that I want is, um, for myself. And, um, so yeah, that, I guess that's my answer. That's good. Well, uh, thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. Um, thanks for making some space this morning. Well, thank you for the honor of having this conversation. I pray it edifies any who might be listening. Yeah. In the park near my house is a series of trails that intersect a small creek in a few spots. And in the winter, that creek rises and it's almost impossible to cross at one location. So a few years ago, someone built a bridge over that spot. They saw a problem and they created a solution in order to address it. Then a week or so later, someone else tore it down. And then in response, the original builder took some of the broken pieces from the first bridge and used them to assemble a new bridge. And I think that's actually how life works and moves forward. 
which is why I wrote that story into my next book entitled, It Is What You Make of It. 15 stories that push back against the kind of it is what it is thinking that keeps us from entering into the world around us and living fully. The book comes out on June 1st. You can pre-order it now. I hope you do. And thank you for listening to this episode of the At Sea Podcast. If you would like to follow up with Karen Swallow Pryor, you can jump to karenswallowpryor.com. Karen with a K, swallow with two L's, the way it's normally spelled. And then Pryor is P-R-I-O-R, karenswallowpryor.com. If you'd like to support this podcast, we'd love to have you on the team. We are up to some really interesting stuff over the next year, and we're looking for some people to support those efforts. You can jump to patreon.com and search my name, Justin McRoberts. Again, we'd love to have you on the team. Until next time.